You're listening to the Alex Wolf Audio Odyssey. Hey, I'm Alexander Wolf. Uh, this podcast uh, video is not going to be exactly focused on business. I thought it'd be a good opportunity right now to talk about the forest fires. And we have Aide, who is a biologist in Northern Ontario. Um, I, what exactly does a biologist do? Uh, well, biologists can range from many different kinds of professions. They can do consulting, they can do research, they can teach, they can work for the government, they can open their own businesses. Like activities though, what do you... Well, first of all, we should introduce you. You're Aide. Hello, you're my, everybody. You're my blood, well, blood sister, like an, a real sister, normal sister. I guess so, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, like we share the same mom. That's, that makes it even more weird. Uh, we're just normal siblings. She's my, older, she's my older sister. I'm his older sister. Um, and I am a biologist by education and by trait. So I do practice what I went to school for. I specialized in biodiversity. I went to McMaster University and I also have a lot of working experience over six years in the field. And doing exactly what? I do various wildlife and fish assessments on and I manage the resources of Northern Ontario meaning so we have fisheries resources where people would like to continue to have fishing opportunities viewing etc I make sure that those resources are there for future generations meanwhile we also provide economic opportunities such as the forestry industry etc so it's all taking a landscape view at an ecosystem and being able to maintain the social, economic and environmental opportunities while trying to balance all those three tiers in the system. So we can, we can say that you are very much qualified to understand ecosystems and nature? Well, I mean, nobody can really understand nature. That's why it's so beautiful. <laughs> but I have a understanding of ecosystems how they work as much as we can, right? Okay. There's always so much that we cannot know and hence why it's so wonderful to be in this position. I'm able to always be surprised and learn new things. All right, so what can we, not bury the lead, what can you tell us about forest fires? As in, what causes them? Maybe, um, are they good? What do they do? Like, what is the function of forest fires? Because they exist in nature naturally. So what are the functions of them? Right. So forest fires are a very natural phenomena. It occurs due to most likely thunderstorms, right? Where you have lightning hitting a tree, sometimes animals, and then based on the weather conditions, localized weather conditions, so your duff layer, meaning the bottom of the forest, if it's very dry and the conditions are conducive to beginning a forest fire, then it will happen, right? Especially in Northern Ontario, where I have most of my understanding from, you have your fuel types, different types of fuel types and terrain, right? You, there's three key elements for a fire or for a forest fire. You have your fuel types, which is your trees. You know, you have your conifers, which are evergreens. They don't lose their needles in the winter. 
and they have very much so serratinous cones, meaning that they need fire to open up, right? Mm. So it's, it's a very natural process. So they need fire. Yes, absolutely. So the boreal forest, which is one of the biggest forests in the world, right, is, it has evolved with forest fires. But let's go back to that triangle. So you have your field types, right? Then you have your weather, right? So you need ignition from lightning, and it, that is caused by your low and high pressure systems coming in. Uh, imagine, so people think of weather as a very localized engine. So when you look up and you see clouds and you're like, oh yeah, you know, it's gonna be a cloudy day or a sunny day. We are looking at weather at a 50,000 feet above the ground. That's the weather that matters. That's the weather that causes and has an effect on your more localized weather. The way that you can think about weather is with your low pressures and your high pressure systems is, have you ever, you know, your normal general geography class where you have your convergent and divergent tectonic plates. So you have a convergent tectonic plates. You have your oceanic plate going under your, um, shoot, I forgot the name of it. Uh, you have the convergent plates coming in and they, what causes earthquakes, for example, right? Or volcanoes. Friction, friction, friction. Now this is your low pressure system coming in with your high pressure system. And they're always constantly fighting, fighting. Eventually the friction is so much that they break. And when that energy is released, that's when you have your weather. Your weather occurs at that level. And that's when you have your thunderstorms or you have your lightning and that causes the fire. And the third is terrain. A fire will spread through a landscape very differently if it's has lots of hills, or if it's just flat and it can run rampant, right? So when you look at those three components, that's predominantly what manifests and creates a forest fire and the conditions of whether it's going to be a very intense forest fire, a small forest fire, etc. Now, forest fires, of course, nowadays we don't let them run rampant, right? We manage forest fires now. We try to not let them do what they were naturally, the ecosystem evolved naturally to be part, to have that cyclical uh, effect of forest fires on these ecosystems, right? Is there a, a, was it like a schedule or like every few years that forest fires are supposed to happen? Mm. So forest fires, if you were to take away human impact from the landscape and, and run models that simulate the frequency of the cycles of forest fires because they have a cycle and we pretty much can picture this right, with the model, them. right? Predict them with the model. We see that without human intervention, there will be big forest fires that burn a lot of the forest, smaller ones, and you can see them. Kind of the sizes and intensity of the forest fires varies throughout time. Mm. Now the the conflict for us to manage such a large landscape level phenomena is that we now consider what it's being burnt a resource, right? We don't want the pines, like your, you don't want those trees to be burnt because you're cutting them for, fu for fuel and for I see. wood, 
right? So we stop forest fires to protect the values found there. The cottages, the eagle's nests, all of those are values that we take into account and that's why we no longer let the forest fires run rampant because we have to protect those values that we use later on. Let's and refocus because I want to hit first talk about the the Amazon hires, right? Because right now right. it's huge on Instagram and all social media. And right. for me, once stuff movements like that start going on and you see everybody posting about them, I see it a lot like propaganda, right? Who's gaining from all these ads? I'm not saying I don't care about the Amazon, but somebody's creating all these ads for a reason, right? So I just look at all those ads and everybody posting about it. I'm like, okay, that's going on. What's really going on? What's the real reason? What's obviously, do you, do you know anything about the Amazon fires? Yes, I've, I have informed myself through social media. Right? Okay. So the news, I find, I, I would agree with you. It's news in these days. So let's just put a little tangent on my perspective on news. News, unfortunately, have to have, I've seen it throughout time, they've had to become a bit more exaggerated in the way that they... To centralize whatever they're doing, so it's like whatever they, filled with emotion. Exactly, to capture the audience, because we have information so readily available to us now. We have podcasts with very informed people that have a lot of knowledge, right, on this particular subject and many more. We have Instagram. Like, Information is readily available for us at a click of a button or at, hey Siri, you know? So I, I feel as though, and I think from what I've seen in the trance, the news have become a bit more exaggerated and they have used more techniques to capture the audience, trying to focus on maybe what's not really should be focused, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not to say that news are all lies, they're just changed their focus. It's perhaps. a business. Exactly. It's a Follow the money. That they want to get more money. They want to get more views. Yes. And I'm a little hesitant on believing uh, nonprofit uh, organizations like charities. That's just my personal view. Um, for just keep some facts. Let's go through some facts. Once a forest fire starts, is there anything we can do as human beings to stop it? Depends on the fire. Right? Depends on the fuel type, depends on the topography, depends on the weather. If you have, right now, Ontario is at a drought state. Fires will pop and will burn very quickly. If you have the right winds, the right ignition type, and the right dryness, so there's barely, there's no humidity, right? Your relative humidity is pretty low right now. We haven't had rain in a very long time. Those indices are indicative of maybe we're going to have a late forest fire season in Ontario. Now, at the scale at which we are observing these, fire fire, uh, these forest fires in the Amazon, we are talking about like a lot, a lot of area. Mm -hmm. What are the resources? First of all, does the, does, does the country have the resources to go and fight these fires? Do they want to fight these fires? Is this something that you would like, you know, the country sees as, do they have the budget? Or is it within their budget to go and spend all Probably this? millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars to save the forest. I understand that there are perhaps a lot of individuals that are concerned with the carbon 
the carbon that may be released and what that means for climate change in such a large scale. Nevertheless, if you're concerned about a forest fire, which is a natural event, this ecosystem has evolved to have cyclical forest fires. Plants need some plants, such as jack pine, for example, to bring it down to a more localized environment, needs fire to open up its cones. Without it, it doesn't. So plants have evolved to have these events throughout their lifetime. Forest fires also, you know, they break down all of the nutrients and it goes down. Now, of course, depending on the intensity, some forest fires can burn down to the to the mineral soil and then that's when you have your loss of soil. Yes, that's also a thing. I am aware of that. But the thing is that if you're concerned about losing the Amazon, then be concerned about losing it due to agriculture, not because of a forest fire. A, for a forest fire is more of a natural event than agriculture. Agriculture, you have clearance of an unnatural, unprecedented clearance of the forest to put in monocultures in place. What's a monoculture? A monoculture is a single species plantation. So basically... Just corn okay, or yes. just soybeans, mm -hmm. which is not good because you deplete... Corn is a C3 species that really depletes your soil nutrition, right? Hence, there's lots of studies done that show that ro uh, crop rotation is, is better because then you are able to put in your, like your leaves, your beans, your legumes, which absorb nitrogen and deposit it back into your soil and provide that to other plants. And then if you rotate it with something that's very ferociously absorbing those nutrients from the soil, such as corn, then at least you're going to have the next growing season. You're going to have something that's going to put nutrients back into your soil. So you're kind of, soil is very important aspect of this. So in, in my personal and professional discretion, I feel as though it becomes a bit too much of a panic when these things happen because you just mentioned key words, right? Oh, climate change. Oh, carbon sequestration. Oh, the Amazon is one of the biggest the rainforests. You're like, okay, yeah, but there has been, you know, the Amazon has been under threat for various, from various types of things throughout existence, existence, right? <laughs> and and it just becomes like the one thing that you focus on. Yeah. This is the one thing to focus on right now. But they've been clearing it for agriculture and monocultures for over 10 years. They've been exploiting and killing species. There has been all of that still there. It's just I find it that news becomes cyclical. They need something interesting to bring awareness. It becomes like a thing and then it dies down and then people forget about it. And then the, then the next thing and then people forget about it. Let's not, let's stay. The fires obviously have some effect of what we've done to the environment, right? Or the people by the Amazon, like clearing helps with the fires, right? What's, what are the human effects on causing forest fires? Right, so as anthropogenic effects on the landscape are evident, if you are going to be changing an ecosystem, if you're going to be changing the ecosystem and its cycles, meaning it no longer has the trees that provide the shade that creates a little microclimate and it has the, hu the relative humidity. It's a rainforest. 
the relative humidity in the, in the rainforest should be 100% because at 100% relative humidity, it rains. So if you clear those big trees, you're exposing all these plants and the soil type that are used to being extremely concentrated with water to the sun, to the sun, to the wind, to all of those erosion, erosion agents, right? That are very, very good at doing what they do. Wind and the sun, they will, if, if a soil is left exposed, you will get rid of all the good top layers of the soil and get down to the mineral soil very quickly. So effects, anthropogenic effects in the rainforest, such as clearing it for agriculture, of course. Is there a direct correlation? Has a study been done at a large scale to say that there are a direct correlation between clearing the land and the frequency and of the forest fire? I'm not aware of any study that has done it at that large, large, you know, large scale. Mm -hmm. But there is, you are changing the fundamental ecosystem. So there are going to be effects, cause and effect. And we shouldn't, my point of view, we shouldn't really judge or look down on these clearings and agriculture. Because we gotta think, if we use Brazil as an example, Brazil for a very long time, probably over 30 years, uh, their main fuel source for cars and machines is ethanol from sugarcane. Of course. Brazil is one of the richest South American countries, if not the richest, because of that, because they plant a lot of uh, sugarcane to create ethanol for fuel. Before that, I'm not an expert, but before that, they were very reliant on the US and the oil which their economy was really bad. But once they started to create their own uh, fuel source from ethanol and from the sugar cane, which meant clearing those for uh, the forest and their Amazon for that rich soil so they could grow the sugar cane. I mean, you come down to the, what's worse, having really poor people dying, starving with gangs or having a little bit of economic prosperity because they cleared Amazon, the Amazon for them to be able to have jobs and wealth. It, it's not like these are bad, this is good, white, white and black. It's really complicated issues. They are, I agree. That's where that, that balance between your social, your economic and your ecological is so important and, and, and nobody has it down. If we had it down, we wouldn't be having these discussions. Does Canada have it down? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, we are better off because we're a first world country, nevertheless, that's not due to, it's mostly due to chance because of we, where we are located, right? You go back to, we are in the Northern Hemisphere, we have a lot of resources, just like they did, but based on our evolution of social evolution, right? We were able to meet Maslow's triangle way faster, right? Where you need, you need your food, your home, your perspective to create that prosperity. It's very easy for myself included to forget that I am very, very lucky to live in a world that provides, well, in a country that's a first world country. I, I, don't, I don't suffer from or lack many, many things. I don't have to worry about running water or drinking water or I don't have to worry about being warm. I have, there, there are, or food nevertheless, right? 
we cannot judge third world countries because they're just trying to meet the basic triangle, right? They're just trying to provide for their families. They're just trying to do what it takes to at least have the basic needs to be happy. So it's very easy for us to look and be like, oh, they're clearing the forest, they're doing this, they're doing that. Well, that's the way that they're able to provide for their families. I would do the same. If it came down and they asked me, you know, clear the forest for your family goes hungry, I would clear the forest. It's a natural inclination for self-preservation. We, as homo sapiens sapiens, have in every other animal, amphibian, reptile, insect, self-preservation is our number one driven natural. We should add two though. Yes, there is corruption. There, and especially in a third world country. Yes, there, they are, there are rules and about not clearing the Amazon or whatever you want to say. And it, there is corruption where there is, they let them cut the because they know somebody in the government. They let them cut down whatever acres, but that happens everywhere. Yes, even Canada. Even Canada, and and a lot of Canadians. I would say that I have known, I'm not saying general populace, I'm just speaking from personal experience, believe that that's not the case. But I, it's a mirage that that's not true. There is corruption everywhere. Now the degree of, because we're so well off, we don't see, we don't see it. Like the, the level of corruption is so high up that once it trickles down to us, it's not as visible as I'm going to pay you under the table so I can cut the forest, so you can, or you, you, you cannot conserve the forest. Mm -hmm. it, it's very naive for individuals to have the ability, meaning have an iPhone and get their news about the Amazon and freak out and be, I want to donate $10 and they feel like they've done something. Okay, great, you've done something, but it has to start with you. If you really want to do and better the world, you have to start with yourself. What can you do to help? Because when you start talking about when you start talking about trying to figure out whether a country-wise decision is right and how to how to manage a country, one of my favorite thinkers of this world, Jordan Peterson, says. Well, if you can't get, if you can't control your home, how can you think to control a country? If you can remain and introduce order into your own life, get up, make your bed, work out, like how hard is it for you to just go and work out? Now you're trying to tell me that you're going to have the answers to figure out how to run a country and how to run inter-country relationships? Like it's absurd for us to even be... It's absurd to think just one person could do it because it's every little thing you do affects another thing. Of course. So you have to, it's just impossible. It's very difficult. It, it is, it is very difficult. And, and not accepting the degree and not speaking about how difficult it is about running a country and, and then running the relationships between countries and how those countries are pretty much their own organism in a way, <laughs> how, um, how we do that and how we go about discussing these things, we must put it out in the air. It's a very complicated 
multi-organism. <laughs> We're talking about billions and billions of people in the world that have their own agenda, and now we put them together and they may have their personal agenda, but they may belong to a group that has a group agenda, and then that group belongs to a bigger group, and then a country has its own okay, agenda. Okay, I'm confused already. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> All I'm saying is that discussing these kinds of large landscape events, we always, we, we shouldn't forget the scale at which we are talking about and the scale of change that we can inflict in those events. Me donating 10 bucks to the Amazon forest fires is going to do nothing. Well, that's depressing. Uh... No, it's not. It's, 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 it's being able to recognize your limitations. Okay. Why don't you tell us more about Northern... Because you're more familiar with the Northern uh, Ontario ecosystem. Right, we're the border forest. Okay, so tell me a little bit more. I'm ignorant, I don't know anything. So tell, <laughs> teach me about like the Northern uh, Ontario ecosystem. You're not ignorant, you're just not knowledgeable. Ignorant okay. is knowing something and still proceeding to do that. All right, thank you. Okay, <laughs> um, okay. so what's the border forest? What do you want me to run, run you down? The boreal forest has a very intimate relationship with forest fires. It has evolved to incorporate those forest fires into its rhythm and cycle. Uh, nevertheless, in the most recent years, the government has, the government industry and all of those components have agreed that because we now value those trees as a resource for economic development and severity, we now protect that, which means that we have Ontario Forest Fire, fire Rangers protecting that and trying to put the fires out. So how do you compensate for that, right? You have a very important key element of the ecosystem that no longer is present. How are you able to provide that type of input into the ecosystem without the fire being there. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to create those types of sporadic, different large kind of burns and mimic what a forest would do through the harvesting of the wood. So let's say a forest fire would come in, here's, here's a lake, here's your forest, and a forest fire would come in and burn all the way up to the lake edge and it wouldn't jump, but it would kind of go to the left. Well, knowing that through modeling, what they're trying to do is they're trying to work with the forest company to cut this, the, the patch size that the forest fire would burn and the pattern of which the forest fire would burn. That way you would have the same type or as close as possible um, pattern and size so they're replacing the fire that would clear and they would clear cut that area. Yes. Okay. So at least to, to try and mimic what the forest fire would... What are the downsides of that? Well, it's... It, some may say that we are still trying to... We're, we're, we're trying to replace a natural process by an anthropogenic process. So we're trying to do something that nature has mastered for many, many, many millions of years mm -hmm. for something that we think is going to work. So we do, we're just doing this without actually really knowing what are the consequences. Well, there are some models. There are, there are, there are some 
science and research behind that shows that this is the best way of doing it in comparison to what we were doing before, which was just clear-cut everything. Not too long ago, they used to just, they used to just clear-cut the boreal forest and not even replant trees. Now there are policies and guidelines in place where you have to, if you do clear cut the area, you do have to come back and replant the trees that were there before, right? So we are improving. I mean, this is all a learning, learn as you go, right? But that's kind of what the new, the, what's happening in the world forest, kind of what we're doing. Um, yeah, so the border forest is beautiful, beautiful forest. I really enjoy it. It's, it has many wonderful wetlands. I mean, that's another huge feature of the boreal forest. The wetland features, especially particular because of the beaver, right? We know that the beavers are a key, keystone species, me meaning that they build their own ecosystem themselves. They build their own little habitat niche by creating their dams and that the dams creates a water logging and water backup creating wetlands. So it's, it's awesome. So beavers create wetlands? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they do. They're amazing. They also, you know, destroy roads. <laughs> because if a beaver dam go, goes, goes and there's a road right there, it will wash it out. So, again, another, another area where humans and nature tend to conflict rather than work together as before. Okay. What can you tell us about um, uh, species going extinct? Species extinction? Yeah. Um, okay, well, there's a general consensus in the science scientific community that species that are, are at a higher risk of going extinct share three main characteristics. One of the characteristics being that they have small population sizes already. So they are species that have already not a lot of members, right? Also, they have... So their population is low. So number of individuals is not large. Okay. Right? And they also have small geographical ranges. So meaning that they, are only, ex they only exist in this island and that's it. And they also have a very... They also have a very low dispersion rate. Okay. Meaning that they, they don't easily they can they cannot easily move from where they are somewhere else, let's say, if it's no longer if they no longer have what they need for that habitat, they can't they can't move somewhere okay. else. So they're very localized, they need to stay in that geolocation to survive. Yes. So those would be that that would that's the general consensus of of what makes a type of species more at risk for extinction. Now, how bad is it uh, in Northern Ontario or in Ontario a species going extinct? Uh, do we have some at risk species? Yes, we do. All of our turtles right now, all of our, Ontario, all of our turtles in Ontario have been listed. So that just gives you an idea. We have we have we have amphibians, we have reptiles, we have mammals, we have birds, we have uh, butterflies, moths, plants. We we have 
a plethora of species at risk at its various levels based on government direction, right? And how bad is it as in... It's, it's natural for things to go extinct? Absolutely. Now, how bad is it... Uh, again, another, another hot topic where news comes and lights fires, unintended. <laughs> uh, how bad is it if a couple of uh, animals or species go extinct? Are the ones that we are keen that we can't lose and are the ones that are like, yeah, we could do without because our ecosystem is changing because of us humans and we can't all live in a forest, in a tree, and eat bark or whatever like we live in cities because they protect us because we can control the climate we can because we can be prosperous we, for all kinds of reasons we create our own environment where we can mm -hmm. flourish just like the beaver creates its own environment where it can flourish right. um can we it's a <laughs> how do we phrase it can we lose some species that wouldn't really affect us See, that's a double-edged sword question because depending on where you put your lands, are you talking economically? Okay. Like, are you talking socially? Are you, talk, are you talking ecologically? Are you saying that a species, like how do you give a species value? How do you afford a species value? So you have Based to consider into the equation what this species does in this ecosystem and do we value it? Well, do we, like, are we the ones to say that it's valuable or not, right? Because to me, everything has its purpose here. Everything, everything that's here is needed for something. And it has its place in that very interconnected web to say and pick and choose which one, which one of those little webs you can take out and it's not going to have a crazy effect on the entire web, it's, it would be very ignorant of us to say, yes, that one can go, no, this one can stay, because when we start assigning value to species to see whether one can go and the other one can't, we cannot possibly understand how maybe those species were connected by a, they were connected somehow over here. And if you start taking that species out, it'll have an effect. Everything will have an effect. So I will not, I would be hesitant to say that we should start categorizing what's more important and what's not more important. Now, try to put that into policy. It's impossible. You can't. You have to strategize. You have to do some risk management because you don't have unlimited funds. You don't have unlimited you don't have unlimited people to go and do these things. Yes. So you do have to run models and assess the risk. You know, um, what, yeah, species, which species, what species do okay. we really need to focus on now? Because we know they will go extinct now, right? Our caribou, polar bears, like they're, they need help now. Are they species that, you know, we, we, we're starting to see their numbers dwindling and their habitat being devastated? But, you know, they still have enough resilience within their population that they're not going to crash right now. So maybe we can focus our, our monetary funds on them a little bit later. But let's focus on, on the ones that are going to die right now, right? To me, that's the way that we, we can do something about it in, in an economic kind of 
political perspective. But if you were to ask me whether one's more important than the other, I would say that's a, that's a silly question to ask. What's going on with the bees? Because since I was young, I remember people saying, oh, the bees are going to be extinct and the world's going to crash because they pollinate everything and blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the update with the bees? All right, give, me, up, give me the rundown. Okay, update with the bees. Uh, it's a funny one because, every again, media has... What I find is you have your flagship species. A flag, flagship species is a species that they've picked, the media has picked, and they've run with it because it's either cuddly, it's cute, and people will be able to relate to it to want to set funds aside to protect it. Now, honeybees, they're cute, they're fussy, they're yellow with black stripes, but, I mean, that doesn't stop there. That's They're big fun. flirts. They're always trying to get my, into my pop. <laughs> but, but honeybees are introduced in North America. They're not a natural species. They're not a native species. Native species. No. And unfortunately, due to the flagship species kind of logic of the media trying to focus on one, you know, try one species that we can focus on to kind of get this message across that pollinators are in danger, they leave behind many other ones that are just as important or more important. As? Our native pollinators. Which are? Mason bees. Mason bees, for example, mason bees, even, even, <laughs> even wasps. Wasps is a whole, recently, there is obviously a negative stigma associated with wasps because they're not fluffy and they don't have nice colors and they bite you and they sting well, and they sting. can sting you more than once right because they don't lose their stinger and they're just they're just rough looking right you can't really like them but they're just as important pollinators if not more because they're native so they are more efficient pollinators to the area than honeybees. Same with mason bees. Mason bees There's are There's a difference between a mason bee and a honeybee. So a honeybee, you have your queen and your drones and the quarter sisters between them, right, that produce honey, so they live in colonies. A mason bee is a solitary bee. There's many different types, many different species of mason bees, but that's just the overall term for that genera. We have bountiful of different kinds of species of mason bees. Mason bees are solitary bees, meaning that they don't live in colonies, they don't produce honey, and they often are black or like darker colors, gray, black, a little okay. white. And they live in little holes that they bury under dirt or in between, um, in between wooden pallets or they're just they're so cute. So do they look like... Well, we'll put a, a picture of what they look like somewhere here. Some of them look like... Some of them may be mistaken by flies. Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because if they're dark color and that size and they buzz, like, people are going to think it's a fly. Yes. If they're not right in your face. Right. So they get mistaken by flies. Uh, but yeah, they, they are way more efficient pollinators than honeybees. I, I don't remember the exact number, so I'm not going to say it, but... You can, the studies are out there where they show you that they're even 10 times better than 
a honeybee at pollinating. And a lot of people are not aware of this, right? Honeybees are not the only pollinators. We have our wasps, we have our butterflies, our moths, our, our hummingbirds. All of these things are good pollinators. So the update on it, which is not really an update, they're still not doing too good. They're still, we still don't know what causes, you know, colony collapse disorder. We still don't know what the effects are of the different types of wavelengths that the radio, microwave, like all of those things. We know that there's an effect, but we don't know at what degree um, it's affecting them and whether or not we're able to stop this. There are lots of, I do have to give a shout out, there has been a lot of awareness about this and the general populace has started to understand the importance of native, let me underline that, native plant species that help our pollinators, right? Um, there has been, you have to be careful because, because it's a hot topic, there have been companies, without naming them, they have offered native seed packages, but when you look at them, they contain invasive species that are not good, right? Okay. In, in, invasive plant species. So you have to be careful. You have to do your research. You can't just... Anything that comes easy is not the best thing. Things, you need to work a little bit to do the right thing. If you're just saying, oh, it says that it's good for pollinators, and you pick it up and it has forget-me-nuts, well, that's, an, that's a very aggressive invasive species. Talk to us about invasive species. What do they do to the ecosystem? Well, invasive species are species that are, they don't normally have a natural predator in the area, hence their populations go rampant, and they often also have their reproductive system is, they, they reproduce faster, they reproduce, their density increases rapidly, and their offspring of those species tends to outcompete the native species. So they're very aggressive. Overall, they grow, they, they reproduce faster, they grow faster, and they just take over the niche of, they break that natural web of connectivity, they come in and they don't have a place. So they come in and they start breaking those very natural, natural ways that things relate to each other by kicking natural things out. Uh, invasive species are... Give us an example of something every, an everyday person here in Ontario would understand and could identify as an invasive, invasive species. Invasive species. There's so many. <laughs> I'm trying to think what would be a good example. We can do either animal or plant. Let's go back to this one. Okay. And then I can formulate a better answer for you. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your next question? Uh, for the bees, you were talking about, uh, not the bees, pollinators. You were talking right. about plants that are native to the area and not introducing invasive species right. to help them. Is there a resource where somebody could, because what is that uh, course that you're, you're taking? The thumb green something? Oh no, it's not a course. It's a volunteer association. It's called Master Gardeners of Ontario. And what they do is pretty much they offer gardening advice. 
Okay. And through that, you can specialize. There's some room just to, to kind of specialize based on what you bring to the table, right? So is you would you would say, I am very interested in, yes, gardening, but the type of gardening that will be beneficial for the ecosystem. So a very naturalized, a naturalized environment, growing, you know, the native goldenrod rather than the invasive goldenrod growing the right thistle, not the invasive thistle, that that kind of thing, and sharing that knowledge with people. Because often people don't know, right? They don't have the time. There are so many things that they can focus. There are so many issues in the world that they are bombarded with information that they need somebody that's willing to digest that information and give it to them in a format that they can just go, okay, and put it into okay. that. So you think... Somebody, and obviously the ecosystem changes wherever you are. So if you are in North Bay, if you're in Sudbury, even different areas inside that city or outside in the outskirts, the ecosystem changes. So they could be planting a different kind of flower compared to the other side of the town. Right, because not only that, but you have your hardiness zones. Your hardiness zones are areas of climatic differences. A plant that grows in southern Ontario probably won't make it in northern Ontario because the growing days are so short. So they won't have the time to grow their roots and go through their natural lifespan without dying because the winter's here. <laughs> okay. Right? So is there anything a normal person uh, site that they can, if they want to garden and want to plant flowers, they could go to and, and know which plants to Sure, there's, there's, a plenty, there's plenty full of resources out there. Google is a great area, but if you want to master gardeners, are those people okay. that are specialists, horticulturists, often horticulturists in background, that you can go. Their advice is free. I'm not doing a little speech here for, hey, go get the master gardeners, but they're a great resource. The other, the other resource that you have is you can go to Northern Ontario plant database or just any type of database that the government has and it will list invasive species and it will list species ranges. So you would know that this species grows from North Bay to Barrie, right? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a matter of just taking that five minutes to say, okay, I'm going to buy this plant. Even when you go and buy the plants at Home Depot for say, they have their little informational plastic sheets that say hardiness zone 3B or 2A. It, it tells you that it'll grow in that area. Now, whether it's native or non-native to the area, you would have to do a bit further research for that. And it's just a simple Google search. Is this type of lilac Native, native to, to Ontario. Okay. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about, no, a little bit more. Let's introduce your business. Because this podcast is supposed to be about business. <laughs> but, like, I just couldn't uh, pass up the opportunity to chat with you about biodiversity. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, what, tell me about your business, what you're doing. Right. So, I am starting up a business with jewelry, sculpture, art, kind of. Okay. In a sense, I utilize 
the leftover carcasses and skulls of animals that have been trapped legally by local trappers of the area and I carve them. I carve... Okay, these words you're choosing? These carcasses and carving? But they are the appropriate words! <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. What am I supposed to say? I grab a little animal skeleton and then I... Well, let's not put the ads. Buy this necklace from this carcass that I carved myself. <laughs> Okay, fine. It's the bio in me that speaks like that. Let's switch from bio to business. All right. So I take these features in the animal that often get unused by the trappers because the trappers focus on the fur, not the bones. And I make them into pieces of art. Some of my pieces that I've developed so far, I have a beautiful dangling earring and it ends with a jaw of a weasel, for example. So weasel is a very small type of animal and the jaw is this small and I just put, you know, I make it into an earring or a necklace. And I find the reason why I wanted to pursue this is because I wanted to come full circle. I found that there was there was so much more that I could do to utilize that animal and to and to provide it a, a purpose after it has been given us its fur. So you get its fur, beautiful, thank you, I thank that. But then I could use those bones for something else. It, it's, further the, it's further showing how the beauty of the animal in, in a way. To me, the animal itself, it, it's beautiful, and every piece of it deserves to be showcased as such. Um, the carving of the bones, again, another very beautiful aspect of showcasing mortality and inter intertwined it with, with artistic endeavors. I, I find that beautiful. It, to, to me, it's... It's being able to introduce a concept that a lot of us are very hesitant to discuss, which is our own mortality. It's something that is not, it's taboo in a way, and we're honestly scared to talk about death. We don't, op we don't openly talk about death. This is, death, death is a, a subject that we are very afraid to introduce kids to, and we try to shelter kids as much as possible from it, but by introducing it in a way that is natural and beautiful, we are opening a, we're opening the, we're opening the room to introduce kids or whatever. If you see a girl wearing these earrings with a Martin jaw, which is a bone and teeth, and a little kid is in the room and be like, oh, auntie or whatever, what are you wearing? And the aunt says, oh, this is from an animal. And the kid will be able to create that connection of like, oh, that's from an animal who is no longer alive, but it's okay. Like it's, there's a purpose behind that. It's, it's a bit poetic in a sense, but I find that it's a subject that at least Northern, the Northern hemisphere is not used to being very openly discussed. And by having these very by having this artistic way of introducing death and having death around us it's a healthy avenue to have those kinds of discussions so i'm hoping that it will trigger that 
at, at the time I also liked to have those artistic escapes for my own for my own personal rewards. <laughs> and if you're not really into all that uh, death experience or whatever you're saying, <laughs> if it's if, it, if they're pretty, they're pretty, they're yes, unique they are. because it's not ma they're not mass produced. No, Every single not. one comes from an individual animal. Mm -hmm. um, what where do you get your your carcasses? <laughs> so my my animal skeletons. I get them from local trappers of the area. Okay. So they are legal, they have their trapping licenses, they go through courses where they know what is the most human, humane way of killing or trapping an animal. And there has been a huge of debate of people that are, again, uneducated individuals in our community feel as though that trapping is so inhumane and you know we're hurting the we're hurting the ecosystem by doing these things meanwhile trapping is one of the oldest if not the foundation of canadian heritage most of the portages for canoes were built and are still there for for fur trade fur trade boomed the economic landscape of canada it was what you know, triggered the development of the train routes, right? It triggered the discovery of, and fur trading and fur harvesting, it's been rooted in Canadian history. To, to, to think that as something that is a negative is very uneducated. And the way that we, that we as trappers have done and are doing things now, is very, very important. If you take away a trapper from an area, so a trapper is a loaded, a trap line. A trap line is a geographical area delineated on a map that says you're allowed to trap animals in this area, right? They have quotas. Quotas meaning that they have beaver quotas. You have to trap 20 beavers a year. If you don't, you get penalized and eventually your trapper's license will get removed, right? The trapper, this is, Trapping right now is not a business. You don't make money out of trapping. You lose money out of trapping because- It's the, a passion. It's a passion. People do this to connect to nature. People do this to be part of something that they were part of, but have been so disconnected from. You go there at minus 30 and you're putting a 330 bear. your hands are freezing and you can't, you know, you, can, you have to be out there checking these traps because the beaver is going to come in and you, you can't damage the fur. And it's, it's an homage. You, it's, it's a respect, a, a submersion of, of human with nature again. But a lot of people think, well, that's bad. You're, you're killing a lot of animals for fur. That's selfish. They don't understand that because this is something that has been happening for pretty much since the beginning of Canadian history, if you were to take away the trappers from that area, those ecosystems would not do well because they will, their populations of those kinds of animals that were being trapped will increase, which will cause a collapse, right? We have been so embedded now in the ecosystem that taking us away from that, the taking trappers away from the ecosystem now 
would cause damage. More harm. Yeah. Okay. Right, because now we are controlling the populations. We we make sure that there's not a lot of these. We're the apex predator. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. You take away your apex predator, your lions. You take away your lions. You take away these. You your wolves, right? Wolves love beaver. They eat a lot of beaver. They also love their moose. If you don't trap wolves, you're not going to have calves and you're not going to have your population of moose increase, right? There's another aspect. So there's a lot of things that you have to have before an opinion is, that's what it is. Everybody is granted an opinion, freedom of speech. But that's just all it is, it's not an opinion. To have an educated, to have an educated opinion, you do have to have you do your homework, you have to do your research, you have to see what are the impacts that hunters, trappers, fishermen have on the ecosystem. Um, same as what are the impacts of canoeists and provincial parks. You can't just... Camping. Camping, yeah. right? Like all of that has its place. We can't start saying that's good, that's bad. Again, going back to what we've talked earlier, right? Like what species is more valuable than to protect than another species? It's not as simple as that, but people can't comprehend that. We like to narrow things down so that we can say yes or no, right? We don't like being in the gray zone. <laughs> but yeah, so my business incorporates, and, and another thing is Northern Ontario, right? Becoming aware of the bountifulness that Northern Ontario has to offer. And yes, I, I just wanted to bring that to the general populace and, and offer them the ability to obtain beautiful craftsmanship. Because you carve, you hand carve, yes. not all of them, but some, I'm assuming bigger pieces where you can actually carve stuff into the, the bone. You carve. Oh, I carve everything from lynx skulls, lynx, beaver, wolf. Okay. Because I kind of want a big moose or something here. <laughs> so good, cool carving with a gold leaf. Horns or <laughs> that's so funny. Sounds good. Christmas. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> is there somewhere where people can check out your things, or is are you still working on? Yeah, so I'm almost done. I wanted to create because it's so unique. I didn't want to mass produce. I don't. I I don't like that. I'm not doing it for the money either. This is this is a way for me to release my creativity. So what I, my idea for this project that is a hobby, I want to create a year, let's say I want to create 20 to 50 pieces. That's it for the year, right? And then the next year I'll produce another 50 pieces uniquely to that. I'm not going to produce 10 Martin earrings, 10 Martin jaw earrings. No, I'm not going to produce 10, I'm not going to carve 10 moose skulls. No, it's going to be one. It's going to be unique. It's, it's one of a kind, kind okay. of, not to be redundant. Uh, and and it also goes back to the perspective of I'm taking what is provided to me for nature. I'm not going to go and seek these animals to purposely create my product. No. I am getting what I get that year. If that year we aren't able to trap anything, I don't produce that in, that year. It's, a, it's more of a creative outlet than an economic 
opportunity. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that you guys see how much, how little I talk because uh, I was listening, like stuff that I, I don't know about and it's just interesting. So it's really nice that you were here and you. Uh, Thank you. You can Thank teach you. us a little bit. No, I appreciate that. I'm sorry I get to be sometimes way too philosophical. <laughs> I go into tangents, I guess, unfortunate. <laughs> but no, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. Until next time. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Please share and subscribe to the podcast if it brought you any value.